You knew, didn't you? Where the Queen of Hearts was. Yeah. It was like I could tell everything that was going on in his head. So, every thought he had, I knew it, and he couldn't fool me. Can you tell what's going on in Sully's head? Ah, Sully's head's always empty. Oh, yeah? <laughs> Sully, you just love doing that. <laughs> yeah, I got you again. Wait, no, 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 no. You know, when you're young, you have moments of such happiness. You think you're living in some place magical. Like Atlantis must have been. Oh, hey, Carol, I owe you $75 and it's your turn. Okay. Here, give me 25 back. 25? Here, okay, here. 20, Wait, 20, no, 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 podcast exploring faith and fear, what scares us and what saves us. This is The Fear of God. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Fear of God podcast. Your favorite podcast, my favorite podcast, everybody's favorite podcast. Speaking to you right now is one of your hosts, Nathan Rouse. Now, typically with me is fellow co-host, gentleman extraordinaire, Reed Lackey, and he was here momentarily, but he excused himself saying, like Ben Johnson, he was given to flatulence. And, you know, it's a rather forward statement from Reed, but hey, you know, it, it just it happens to the best of us. So, presumably, he'll be back momentarily. Um, if not, I, we should maybe call a doctor for him. But uh, while he's gone, I want to say hello and happy holidays and Merry Christmas. And it is the middle of December. We are coming up on Christmas. We're in the middle of a brand new series, rediscovering some Stephen King works. Um, but... If you have not done so before, we would greatly appreciate it if you would go to iTunes and leave a rating. You know, a five-star rating, of course, um, because, you know, anything less would just be false. Um, write us a review. That's wonderful, too. We use those. Um, we share those. Um, it means a lot to us. But honestly, in this weird algorithmic fashion that is imperceptible except to um, Tim Tim Apple... Um, would you please subscribe to our podcast? That'd be really awesome, too. Um, so do those things. Those are intangible things. If you want some tangible things, you can also, ladies and gentlemen, go to tpublic.com where you can make a merch perch of Fear of God apparel. 
You can you can go to tpublic.com, search the Fear of God podcast. You can find t-shirts there. You can find magnets there. You can find pillows there. Arnold Schwarzenegger, y'all, has a Fear of God pillow. He told us last week on our Running Man episode. So magnets, t-shirts, mugs, pillows, cell phone cases. Reed! You're back! Reed! You hey buddy. Every now and then, <laughs> you get these so right. <laughs> this is one of those moments. <laughs> About 50% of the time, you take them in wow. really weird directions. And I'm like, I don't know how to follow you there. You know, another, another you know, 30% of the time, you just dive us into the episode. And sure, then sure. there is that 20% sliver. Where you, just, you nail it. You... Nail it. And brother, you nailed it. You did great. <laughs> Excellent work. I appreciate, I appreciate that validation. <laughs> clear the clear the room, everybody. Clear the, clear the room, everybody. Reed is, is here. Oh boy. Um, hey buddy. Hey, I got hey, you're here. You're yeah, you're yeah. deflated. Um <laughs> well, it took the wind out is, of me. <laughs> oh, yeah. You broke it. It's so cheesy, but I cut it. Uh, Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) You idiot. (laughs) My man said it's so cheesy, but I cut it. Um, Before we get too far down that path, what are you watching? What are you reading? What are you listening to? Oh, yeah. I know what you did there. That was great. I can't, I can't get it. I can't find it. It's, no, you, 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 had, you, had, it. you oh, had it. You had it. I it was failed. great. No, it was I great. Failed. It was great. That was terrible. I, I that was like it. a That was like an episode one version of Tune. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that was a phantom menace right there. That was, yeah, yeah. Hey, buddy. So, hey, yeah. man. Um, clearly, so what it's you, that yeah. time. Yeah. What so, you been watching? I got a well, hint. I asked you, but I'll answer. You do. Um, so yeah, dude, dude, it is like peak Star Wars, not like peak King, as we discussed. No, don't, don't, no, no, no. Come, bring it back, bring it back. Bring it back. Here you are. I'm at the that real it back. That, that that was, was magic. man. That was so um, fun. Yes, it was. Um, yes, it absolutely was. Um, go back and listen to Stand by Me, uh, roughly minute fifty or so. Um, <laughs> Uh, but no, it is peak Star Wars. Like, it's possible we'll never be at this level of peak Star Wars again. Though, maybe, you know, maybe. Disney Disney is crazy, and who, they'll probably do this. You know, right now you got Mando and Baby Yoda. Oh, up, my gosh. Tearing up the galaxy. Yeah. Right? World's most you popular know? show. Yep, absolutely. I mean, it's a little freaky how perfect Baby Yoda is. He's so great. Oh my gosh. It's insane. Yeah. And does so little, but it's just so perfect. It's It's enough. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's wonderful. He sips He sips his tea, you know? It does tap into judging you. <laughs> it it does tap into a bit of the and not just because it it kind of resembles, but it does tap into that kind of gizmo like mod like sure. cuteness. Like it ta- it and yet, definitely to the next level. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's so fantastic. It's really, really wonderful. I mean, 
the moment on the ship when he's playing with the buttons and keeps going back to him is insanely mm, magical. Mm, like, mm-hmm. like <laughs> I, I don't, I don't, I don't know how they pulled that off. Anyway, so you got Mando, Mando, and little baby Yoda tearing up the galaxy. You know, it is. It's time for Rise of Skywalker. Like it's it's upon us. It is upon and us. And when this episode airs, it, we will be. I will be two days out from watching it. As in, oh my gosh, you know, two days from recording release, uh, and so what I've been watching, I know it's crazy. Um, uh, I'll also be having more gray hair on my beard and head because I'll be in the middle of the birth season fourteen. Oh. Um, but regardless, uh, so with my oldest kiddos, we've been watching some Star Wars movies, man. Oh, we completely, that's awesome. we completely ignored episodes one through three because did you? Just what you got to do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're like, come on, why did you um, even ask right, me? Yeah, of course we did. Life's too short. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but this is all in prep. So, so Reed, you and I have talked about, I don't honestly know if we've ever talked about this on the show, but we have just sort of, you know, volleyed this back and forth. And more or less, we've done this. We just haven't named it this this way before. You know, uh, listener, we have our routine episodes are like the one you're listening to right now. Um, we have our quarterly kings, which is their own little format. We have occasional little bonus episodes a la reed and his son talking about universal monster movies a la oh, bill yeah. oberst jr interviews mm-hmm. um retroactively we're going to dub those as such but um in prep for rise of skywalker uh we're going to be having our first b-side you know mm-hmm. like the old cassette like the cassette tapes that Arnold finds in his brother <laughs> that was his brother's place, his okay, brother's reed? place. yes I, that was his brother's place that, I, I kind of missed that, that last week <laughs> yeah um, i i did you did um disinformation um <laughs> and we're gonna do a b-side where myself and presuming it all works out um another previous guest we've had on the show before mr ian olson he guessed on a couple of our quarterly kings um also a star wars head we are going to be he and i are going to be discussing rise of skywalker as well as some other you know kind of star wars stuff so have you'll have that to look forward to likely to come sometime in january that episode at least um, but yeah, so I have been consuming Star Wars. It is what was really funny. Um, my wife is amazing in so many ways. One of the ways in which she is not at all is in <laughs> pop culture consumption. Um, and it's really every now and then it's just like this brick wall. Like, why will you not just love Baby Yoda? You know, like <laughs> this marriage is on the rocks because wow. you will not love Baby Yoda the way you're supposed wow. to. Um, but what's really funny is last night uh, she and I went to her company Christmas party and turns out she works with a bunch of Star Wars heads and all of a sudden I'm in oh, the mix of these all these people oh and we start talking maybe I'm like I've, I felt really torn because I want to be <laughs> deferential to my wife right but I'm like well no I'm this gonna Star talk Wars. about Star Wars and Baby Yoda with the people that you work with because, <laughs> you know like I need to feel comfortable and secure in this environment with strangers so Baby Yoda it is sure anyway at so, that point, yes. she needs to just sort of get on the train. Like at that point, she's just like, "This is this." Is I'll let heading. you tell her that, <laughs> um, but I will not. Uh, of course, of course. <laughs> I'll just say you're amazing and move on. And As you should love Baby Yoda on behalf of both of us. Oh, um, okay, but my, you know, again, so me and the two eldest kids have been, you know, Mandalorian, and we started with Rogue One, and we're tracking Rogue One through the Last Jedi. We've got the Last Jedi left to go. And then we'll go see Rise of Skywalker. So, yes, it's an exciting time in the Rouse house when it comes to, 
a galaxy far, far away. That's awesome. What have you been watching? That's awesome. So um, it kind of took me like four weeks to watch. Um, but because it's that long, that's or a it just joke. Took yeah, you no, to get around to it. No, it's a, uh, it's that long. Um, no. In all seriousness, I watched the new Martin Scorsese film, as he dubs it, a Martin Scorsese picture that hit Netflix. Um, we had discussed on the pod, although I can rem- not remember how long ago it was. The the debate, the Steven Spielberg mm-hmm. debate, and I said, you know, Martin Scorsese's doing his next film. For Netflix, and uh, the the Irishman is a three and a half hour film, and I watched it uh, over the Thanksgiving holiday, and it was uh, so it's kind of being hailed by a large number of critics as you know a bona fide masterful work of Scorsese. To me, um, I found it to be uh, quite strong in many ways, but the length did sort of burden me after a while. Mm. Um, I, I felt the length. What's interesting to me about that is that for me, and in some of the other post-viewing pieces that I've read, um, for a lot of other people, the most compelling parts of the film are in the last hour and 15. Like, those are the most uh, gripping moments of the film, not in terms of, like, suspense or whatever, but just the weight of drama and character and everything like that. And so one could say, well, they would not be quite so gripping if not for, you know, the two hours and 15 that preceded that. Um, that is difficult to gauge. But I will say that, like, I really I really enjoyed it and, and was glad to have seen it. Um, I mean, it stars all the big names. Joe Pesci is back from kind of a semi-retirement. Um, Robert De Niro in the lead. Uh, Al Pacino in his very first Martin Scorsese film. Um, so it, it's got some heavy hitters in terms of acting talent. It is a basic mob crime story. I mean, to call it basic is, is a bit reductive, but it's a mob crime story centered, uh, in large part around a man with some humble beginnings, but who rises to be a very important and prominent figure in the life of Jimmy Hoffa. And, uh, Jimmy Hoffa was a historical figure. Not going to go into all the ins and outs because good Lord, it's three and a half hours long. Um, but I mean, it's one of those films that I would say if you are remotely interested in Scorsese's output, particularly his output about, you know, these sort of crime dramas and crime epics, like you should see it. Like you should absolutely see it. Um, it's a very well performed piece. It's a well constructed piece. Um, there are some, some fantastic moments in it, even if the overall piece is not this big recommendable behemoth, um, you know, it, behemoth. These random insertions that we make. Ooh. Oh man! So, um, but that one there. But uh, but yeah, I mean, like I do, I do find it a very compelling. Uh, piece, particularly as I said, in its last hour, and um, and so yeah, so that is what I've this been is, watching. This is frustrating because uh, nothing you have said is frustrating. Like you are not in yourself frustrating. It's frustrating mm. because as I've known, okay, I need to watch this. I do mm. try to mm. watch as many of what will end up being Oscar Best Picture nominees, and that sure, sure, pretty pretty much a shoe in. Um, for something it absolutely is yeah the, one of the worst feelings that can happen when you're in my type of brain space which is like okay i try to so, for instance i went to go see parasite recently which is amazing mm. 
and highly recommendable. But I was worried going into it. I'd been following the breadcrumbs of that movie's release since it had been debuted at whatever film festival it did. And so uh, by the time you get to it, you're like, oh, God, man, this, I don't know that what I'm about to watch can in any measure stack up to the, the hype. And so I'm worried with the Irishman that what you, so the frustration comment is simply what you basically just said is, this is going to be the homework you're worried it is. Oh, oh I see. <laughs> you know yes. what I mean? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You'll, you'll find a way to appreciate it, and it is worth appreciating, but it'll be homework. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, like, right, right. Because every yeah. now and then, like, I remember this happened to me watching the first Godfather, because it took me a long time before I got around to that, and I was worried the weight of legacy and history and time would burden it, overly burden it. Sure. But yeah, I loved yeah. it, and, and really found it actually genuinely compelling, Mm. Uh, in the watching of it and but that doesn't happen that often more often than not it's the reverse where you finally get around to that classic movie and you're like yeah that was that that was the thing there's that you know (laughs) everybody loves it yes yes well i will say two more specific comments about it that are non-spoiler um joe pesci normally particularly in scorsese films has been the one who like explodes. He plays these very angry, like like, car- like the guy's head and Running Man. <laughs> exactly <laughs> like the guy's head and Running Man. So, but he's the guy who's like who like just just flies off the handle when he feels insulted or anything like that. There's that famous scene, like you know, oh, like do I amuse you? You know, from from Goodfellas, and and so right. like he. But in this one, he delivers a really compelling performance because his character is like alarmingly reserved and Hmm. there's a lot underneath the surface and he does a remarkable job at it. Like just this very, very sort of quiet menace kind of thing. And I got to say, I have been on with Pacino and De Niro and others from that same era. I have kind of been in the camp of like with, with respect, most of your best work is behind you. Now you are kind of delivering the same kind of thing every single time and you do it well, but this, like, I just know I'm not surprised by you anymore. So what I will say is that in this film, for me, that was kind of true for Pacino. Pacino's good at what he does. He's interesting to watch on screen, but that's kind of true. For I mean, me. he kind of, he kind of peaked at Dick Tracy. <laughs> I mean, Holy that's kind of, <laughs> Oh my gosh, man, busted out. Dick Tracy. <laughs> All things. <laughs> He kind of peaked. Hoo-ah! <laughs> scent of a woman, but okay. I know. Oh, I know. Man, that was great. Just throw it all in a Pacino stew. That's great. No, the last time that I really felt like Pacino delivered a performance that surprised me was actually his performance in Christopher Nolan's Insomnia. That was a long time ago, and that was the last time that like, he really delivered a very nuanced and layered kind of sure. performance. But I will say that in The Irishman, so De Niro is either narrating or in every scene. And De Niro, for me, knocks it out of the park. Like, De Niro does some things that, even in pieces like this, that I'm not accustomed to him doing. That I'm not, it, it's not uh, common for me to see some of the ways in which he addresses some of the problems. He does a tremendous amount. And he and Scorsese have a lot of history. Like, they've made a, a lot of films together. And uh, for a long time, they were kind of mutual muses for each other. And so I can 
kind of understand like these two people getting back together and kind of falling back into that creative rhythm. But I got to say, man, De Niro is an impressed to me was a very impressive performance in this. He he's, there's a lot of layers to uh, the portrayal that he gives of this character. There's some unexpected reactions to certain things. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I don't want to spend too much more time on it, but there are some genuinely impressive things about it, even though I wish I could say you were wrong about this is going to be a little homework. This is going to yeah, be a little bit of homework. Um, but, uh, but yeah, still still worth seeing. It's on Netflix now. And, uh, yeah, The Irishman. And that, ladies and gentlemen, has been another installment of What You're Watching, What You're Reading, Listening To. What You're Watching, What You're Reading, Listening To. What You're Watching, What You're Reading, Listening To. What You're Reading, Listening To. Reading, Listening To. Listening To. I'm so proud. Thank you. That's great. You did a great job. That seems a little more in reach. Thank you. Reed, so we are, we're back at it. We are back at it. Our desk is in the corner. um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we are bringing home 2019, um, the series in which we have been our, you know, every year, if you're relatively new to the show, Every year, if you're relatively new to the show, welcome. Thank you for being here. Um, uh, we try to do kind of an overarching series for the year. Uh, one year we did uh, some select works of Alfred Hitchcock. One year we did Universal Monsters. This year, we're discussing selected works of Stephen King. We hit on King's material every 25 episodes or so, which we call Quarterly Kings. But this year specifically, we wanted, in the spirit of the year of 19, that being a bit of a mystical numeral in mm-hmm. the the oeuvre of uncle stevie <laughs> um we yeah <laughs> a myst, myst, mystical numeral in the oeuvre is not a phrase you get to say every day uh and we wanted to uh highlight some of some of the lesser non tentpole works of stephen king right now specifically dialing in on the aptly titled per mr lackey Hashtag different seasons, uh, which is also the name of a collected work of short stories where we're, we did with stand by me two weeks ago. We did with running man last week. We yeah. are going to be partnering our main content, which this episode happens to be hearts in Atlantis. I'm talking a lot cause I don't have a lot to say about that movie. Um, <laughs> and, uh, specifically discussing today, the short story, the woman in the room, which Reed is this one also from night shift. This is from night shift. Yes. Um, that's collection, by the way, like if, if we didn't hit it hard enough last week, like it, it is filled with some really great King short stories. Like it's early King works, uh, even earlier in terms of when the material was actually written earlier than many of his novels. Um, so it is, uh, it's kind that's of the first pass across the bow of a lot of King's, uh, imagination and, and material. And, uh, yeah, so, and, and it is, as we all know, we we love him to death, but the his material, even his short stories, can be rather lengthy in many instances. Night Shift is filled with a lot of pretty brief, easily digestible stories. Um, and yes, is a great collection of, of material. Well, and it's funny because last week I had this thought and for whatever reason just kind of passed it by, but I'm sure you have possibly explicitly stated it, but even just in, you know, patchwork versions of recommendations we've made of King's work generally, I think if someone has never read King, picking up one of the collections like this is probably a great 
starting point. Absolutely. You know? like, yeah. Yeah. Like it's, it's, you get a real, I, I highlighted last week with last rung on the ladder. You, you just get a real slice of what he's great at. Right. Which is yeah. quick drill down characterization. Like mm-hmm. he's just really good at compact sounds like a, a, a negative word. I don't mean it that way at all. He's just really good at packing a punch, doing a lot with a little. Uh, yeah, most yeah, notably in the short story format. And in fact, if King throughout his 40-ish plus year career has a criticism, it's that he can be too lengthy. And so, yes, sure. you know, when, when it gets unwieldy, a la something like Even the Stand or possibly Under the Dome, which is actually, I actually really like that book until the yeah. end. But, yeah, sure. um, you know, these are just really great packets of Stephen King to test out, you know, would you like this material or not, his material or not. Yeah, no, I I wholeheartedly agree. And in that, the like the two collections that I would point uh, listeners to, uh, well, there there are kind of three, and I'll rank them for myself. Uh, the first one that I would say, because I think it has the most stories that exhibit what you're describing, is actually the Everything's Eventual collection. That yeah. that almost every story is just for me amazing. And we covered. Yeah. Two out of that. From yeah, this yeah, we did. Uh, uh, Man in the black, Man in the black suit. And uh, all that you love will be carried away. Mm, um, so yeah, so yeah, we sure did. Uh, so everything's eventual is one that I would absolutely point you to. Second, I would point you to Night Shift. Night Shift is early King. It's got a lot of great. There's there's a couple of stories that you know you'll just read and be like, oh, that was a story and it was fun and whatever. But there's some really you know hard hitting ones in there too. The third one I would point you to, which is very much larger, is uh, Nightmares and Dreamscapes, just because of his collections. For me personally, that is one of the most sort of the widest variety of different types of stories uh, in that particular. But those three King collections are really great places to start, all easily accessible to, you know, your public library or Amazon or whatever. But yeah, I I wholeheartedly agree with you. It's funny. This sounds like a a slight to King. It actually isn't. But for someone considering the short story stuff and you just happen to, you know, look up collections of his work, I would actually of the ones named avoid full dark, no stars as in, Oh, like, right. Right. Full dark, no stars was not named, but as in I would pivot the direction Reed has suggested full dark, no stars has some great stories in it. In fact, 1922, which we covered at the mm, top of the year, yeah, yeah. Um, featuring Thad Jane. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Good old Thad wow. Jane. All the way back. Um, wow. Uh, Th- Thomas Jane. Sorry. Thomas. <laughs> um, uh, Thad was in, you know, uh, what was the before I wait? Flan- yes. What was yes. the Flanagan movie? Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. Yes. Um, of course. How can we forget that here? Um, <laughs> uh, no, but uh, uh, in Full Darkness Stars is 1922 and a couple other good ones. But Full Darkness Stars is, I believe, it's just four. There's just four. There's only four. Very, very lengthy. I mean, yeah. Te- technically, they're short stories, but they qualify probably more like novellas. Yes. Um, yeah, they do. You know, and and so if if you're interested in what I was pitching, which is just this kind of quick and easy version of getting uh, a lot for a little, I would avoid that one. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I agree. The, um, the paperback version of that for reasons I can't quite explain has a fifth story in it. That's much briefer. Yeah. I remember. Yeah. Under the weather is the name of that one. But, um, but, uh, let's get to, uh, the woman in the room. This, uh, so the woman in the room is, uh, as is fitting for our hashtag different seasons is not a horror piece. Um, it is a remarkably 
moving but also very challenging emotionally story about a man coming to terms with the decision, I mean, in brief, coming to terms with the decision he's struggling to make about whether or not to euthanize his terminally ill with cancer mother. Um, and she is the, the woman in the room of the title. And it, it, it it's just sort of his exploration, not only of the events that are occurring to her uh, under his observations, but also his internal struggle with, you know, what am I... What am I supposed to do here as a as a son, and what's my responsibility as a human being, and and uh, and so for such a brief story, it's wrestling with some pretty weighty things. And this, as I understand, you had also never read before preparing for this episode, right? No, no, no. I, I'm I don't know that I've ever read anything from Night Ship, so these were both mm, mm. fresh. These are both fresh reads. <laughs> I'm a fresh read. You, you, you are. <laughs> I handed you that one. The freshest. <laughs> <laughs> DJ Jazzy Nate and the Fresh Read. Oh, um, so no, I was boy. I was totally unfamiliar with this. <laughs> I didn't take many notes on this. Mainly, oh, I've got some thematic thoughts and and just sure, throw those out sure. too. But hysterically, read. I don't. I'm pretty sure I've referenced this before in relation to King. I started listening to this audio wondering about notes I might take, you know, just, I just, I don't know how long these are going to end up being and you know, what right, might be right. in them. Jokily thinking to myself, it'd be really funny if in the short story, the word apotheosis showed up. <laughs> <laughs> like literally that was the conscious active thought when I queued up the woman in the room. Okay. okay. Uh, if you've never read any King, like, just you've you've read half of them if you know and can read the word apotheosis like that, that yes, is yes like, it's everywhere you could play a drinking game to how you'd have to read a lot of king to actually get drunk but it shows up everywhere <laughs> and sure enough in the woman in the room five minutes or less after having that conscious active thought sure enough the something something apotheosis. I was like, oh, yep, oh yep. Uncle Stevie, you there never fail to let me down. <laughs> there it is. It's like the Where's Waldo of the Stephen King <laughs> material. Yeah, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah it, there it is. Going to show up because yeah. uh, who the hell knows the word apotheosis? But <laughs> King, King discovered it at like seventeen, and he's like, I like that one. You know? <laughs> so he's used it ever since. That's my little insertion. Um, yeah. So uh, I do want to mention, kind of just. Just in passing, because I think it's an interesting sort of trivial note on the woman in the room. Um, it was not the first dollar baby. Um, I don't know what the first dollar baby is. To to for those who might not know what a dollar baby is, Stephen King has had a very very long standing policy that any of his short stories that are not currently under license for adaptation by a major you know production studio, um, he allows students or anybody with the interest in adapting it, um, he allows them to have the right to adapt one of his short stories for a dollar. Again, as long as it's not already under licensing from someone else. Uh, they cannot, the rules are you got to pay for a dollar, uh, you cannot seek profit on your film, and you have to share a copy of the finished film with King himself. And, you know, with those three criteria, go make your movie and have fun. And a lot of these have been adapted this one, The Woman in the Room, was adapted by Frank Darabont. 
director of huh. the Green Mile and the Shawshank Redemption and the Mist. Um, and so, a, a, again, it was not the first Dollar Baby, but when Darabont sent King a letter, wrote him a letter, he was not aware of King's policy that th- that he would do this thing. So he asked, and he's just like, I really want to try to adapt your story, he found it moving and everything like that. And then, of course, King accommodated, and it started a friendship between the pair of them that eventually led to him adapting Shawshank Redemption, and we'll be covering that next week, and so all that all that good, fun stuff. Um, but yeah, I just thought that was interesting of note. It is really difficult to find. It was officially released to video, and I have seen it, but these days it is very difficult to, to is get. Is the title the same? Yes, you know? The Woman in the Room, and it, it's a very faithful adaptation. Um, and you can imagine Darabont's sensibilities. It's very, you know, emotionally resonant, and, and I remember it being very strong as a piece, but um, it has been years and years and years since I've seen it. Um, I actually stumbled across it in an old video store. It was packaged with an adaptation of another Night Shift story called The Boogeyman and packaged in a little thing called The Night Shift Collection. And it was just hmm. these two, you know, like 45-minute uh, things that when you know when viewed in sequence make a feature film length but yeah it was an adaptation of the boogeyman and the woman in the room and um, and yeah so it, it's it if it it's out there on the internet somewhere I'm sure but I just thought that was an interesting piece of trivia now let's uh let's, let's get to the story itself uh, what did you think how did you respond to the woman in the room um I found it really powerful and compelling and this is gonna sound real morbid but I'm, i don't know i've just been thinking about death a lot because it's what you do when you turn 40 reese just <laughs> just you got that to look forward to okay. oh my gosh yeah um, next year that's gonna be it right, right right um but i think i mentioned a couple weeks ago my wife has been reading some of these like you know kind of end of life memoir type things and, oh and yes, I, yes i'm i'm assigning that genre title i don't know that she would but you know and and it's interesting because i'm going to reference heavily for this moment, the phantasm episode and the latter 20 minutes of that. Oh um, yes. Yes. Yeah. Reading this story or listening to the story, how I did conjured for me the experience of our dog passing away a few months ago. And, yeah. and that, because I mean, as you said, the, the, the story is his choice or not to euthanize, you know, his mother in this scenario, right, which right. is a very common practice, you know, for your animals, your pets. And, it's, I don't know. And so, so it added this whole new kind of context to me, not the pet aspect. I don't mean that, but just as in, I've been thinking about this and even the euthanasia aspect of it. And it was interesting because, and I will, I don't foresee getting as emotional in this moment as I did there, but reflecting on those days, yeah. um, it's interesting. I was just chatting with my wife after that experience as I just sort of emotionally unpacked or sort of thought about intellectually even unpacked over the course of the following weeks after that. And you asked about the story. And so I feel like I'm maybe erroneously <laughs> addressing other things than what you're No, in. no, 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 no. Okay. Um, but, but even just observing, I don't even remember the character's name, but observing the son's, the weight he carried. Uh, I don't think he's given a name. I'm yeah, not okay, certain, okay. but I don't think he's yeah. given a name. Yeah. Um, the weight he carried of making this choice and the deliberation and the sort of anxiety and the stress and the, and he ultimately does. Um, yeah. yeah. You know, but, 
but it was interesting because I think this sort of revelation I had about the experience I had with our dog was there was almost this weird recognition of a selfishness that I was attaching to that. Mm. And hear me. Um, What I mean by that is I kept hitting this wall of like how the passing of this creature in this instance affected me. Yeah. And, and, and kind of just through reflection and, and conversation with my wife kind of came to this moment of like, you know, I don't know that, and you can, I do at least, I tend to have these moments of perhaps wisdom that I then will blow up to, you know, kind of macro view. So, but the micro was, I don't know that I'm supposed to make this about me. (laughs) Mm, Right, right. And there was this really powerful turn in me of, which is clearly after the phantasm conversation, but... (laughs) there's this really powerful turn in me of sort of coming to this place of like, it's about our dog was a girl. It's about her and it's about being present. And on a certain level is that again, maybe it sounds like I'm propping myself up here. I'm not, but is that a a maturation? Is that a maturing? Is that a, and, and a moment of sort of spiritual enlightenment, if you will, of just like, okay, uh, I can't, I, I don't know that I'll be successful at this every go around as I watch someone part from right, this right. world, but there's this real powerful sort of comprehension and revelation. I use that word intentionally of it's not about me. It's, it's about letting this person know they're not alone, letting this creature know right, someone right. who loves them is present. And, and so it was interesting. Um, I know we need to get back to the text, but it was interesting because that led to conversations between my wife and I of just like tying it directly back into the material of the stigma we attach to euthanizing humans, mm. which is a mm. huge, I know that's a giant topic I just introduced there, but sure. No, I, I understand. We just pondered like, what are we doing to each other here? In the sense yeah. of you prolong the agony of people and, and, is there, is there, it is a, it is an actual question. It's not meant to be rhetorical, but is there perhaps something holy and faithful in some sort of, if not active choice, like what this gentleman makes in the story, at the least sussing out a little better and attaching a little less stigma to the choice of a person who might want to be that I don't know. I, no, I think I you understand you. what I'm hear... scratching yeah, yeah, yeah. at while not coming out and saying, hey, Reach, are we euthanize each other? No, you know, that's <laughs> no not I what I'm after, but. Well, just... and that's, uh, yeah, and, the, and, and, and and that would be, I think that's the, something that you and I return to from time to time, both explicitly and implicitly, is some of these conversations simply do not break down in a binary way sure. of like yeah. a do you or don't you like, okay. So a huge major spoiler for the film I'm about to name, but um, the, the, have you seen million dollar baby many like over a decade are you, ago? Are you joking? I, I, no, I'm not. I don't know what you've what, seen. Or what much, you haven't like, 15 much like, much like, much like apotheosis. Uh, <laughs> when you were just talking about 
the dollar babies. I thought of million dollar baby. I thought That's of me derailing you about six hilarious. months ago, or whatever it was, talking about Makushla and spoiling it on the show. Oh my gosh! So yes, and and now it all comes back. Yes. So um, okay. So for those who don't know, there's a, a plot element, and maybe I'll sort of sideways spoil this. There's a plot element that involves this exact complication of do do I euthanize somebody in who who the trajectory of their entire life now looks you know, completely lifeless, as it were? Or, you know, do you attach the intrinsic value to presence and being here in whatever form that is and uh, and then allow them to continue to live on? And whose choice is that? And, and, and one of my favorite moments in that film, because of how challenging it is and how emotional it is, is a moment when the character trying to decide whether or not to euthanize the one they care about is consulting the advice of a priest and uh, I'll just I'll just go ahead and say the character that I'm referring to is Clint Eastwood. And in, in an alarming moment of um, sort of against type acting, Clint Eastwood is in tears. There are tears streaming down his face. He always plays this very tough guy. And so in this moment, Clint Eastwood tears are streaming down his face. And he's playing uh, the priest. I can't remember. No, no, no. He is playing the one. He's the, he's the character oh, right, who is right, right, tr- struggling. Right. Right, right. Yeah. So he's struggling to determine whether or not to uh, euthanize this person that he cares so much about. And uh, the priest uh, says something. I don't remember the priest's exact line, but I remember his. Uh, the priest says something about like, you know, we need to trust in God or we need to, you know, we need to ask for God's help or whatever. And Eastwood looks back at him, tears streaming down his face, and said, she's not asking for God's help. She's asking for mine. Mm. And it is a profound, again, it's not simple. It's not a simple conversation. Nor should it be. This is literally a matter of life and death. And nothing that is a matter of life and death should be broken down simply. And with respect to the variety of very passionate and thought-out opinions I would challenge anybody who says, no, this is fundamentally very simple to say you you have not really fleshed out the experience of this for people beyond your own thoughts and patterns. Even if you yourself have had to face a situation like this, there are a multitude of different experiences. There are a multitude of different conclusions. And one of the things I appreciated to bring it back to the text of, of King's story is he thinks through, and we're invited with him to think through the implications both for himself and his sibling and also what other people are going to think and what other people are going to do because this was written at a time when, and it was written in the, in, the, in the mid-70s, so it was written at a time when it was certainly a conversation but not to the extent, I mean, what right. is anymore, uh, you know, the conversations are so widespread these days. But um, to the extent of volatility that it is in today's climate, it was not that then. Um, so it was pretty bold for King to be addressing this subject in this way and, and exploring it through the lens of this character. Um, you had mentioned earlier that the character does ultimately decide to relieve the pain of his mother. And um, and I found for myself so poignant and moving the final few lines of the piece where after he has made this decision— he then sort of almost mechanically goes home and awaits the inevitable phone call because nobody yeah. no, he does it in such a way that nobody will know, or at least it, it'll be difficult to know that he has done this. And uh, so he goes home and, and sort of waits by the phone 
for the call that's going to come to let him know that that she's gone. And um, and I found that to be very powerful, regardless of uh, how I may feel about his choice. It is an incredibly emotionally gripping film and or film. I said it's an incredibly gripping story, and I do think that it is. Um, it's a challenge to us, to you and I, and and anybody who would consider such matters of life and death, that it 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 just becomes difficult once the issue is humanized, once the sure. issue is a person, as it should be, absolutely. Right. And 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 I will wrap um, some faith language into this, um, not intending to just completely derail us, and and maybe it won't. But to me, that that should that idea of when it is humanized, the fill in the blank when it is humanized, Nathan, I find that to be foundational to navigating our faith. Do you know how many principle? Of course you do. How many principles we hang our hat on and debate on and everything, and then forget that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and that the the incarnational importance of some of these things and how vital it is to broadening our perspective to uh, reflecting on things in different ways like that incarnational element when the issue becomes a person and takes on flesh and blood it feels different you think different you react different and and so that humanizing of it um, you had mentioned in your unpacking of it like how much holier a work that might be I think that's the essence of it is is seeing an individual as a human being and not as a statistic or an issue and that is right. that is holy work regardless of where you land on what the choice should be it is holy work to move them past the issue phase and into a flesh and blood human being fearfully and wonderfully made on and on and on and on well and what's interesting about the text is of the woman in the room is while it invokes the the profundity we're talking about here. I actually think uh, this is actually not a technical criticism of the work as much as it's a fascinating take on the mechanics of it. And that is, I think it pulls the punch in the sense that I found it really for where I'm at and, and where my intellectual self is in terms of wrestling through these issues and me coming to this kind of revelatory moment of like, it's not, I hate saying it's not about you. That's such a cliche phrase, but <laughs> as in no, like I understand. how I am impacted by the passing of a thing, though important, isn't ultimately the, the better version of how to faithfully kind of carry this stuff out. Right. It's interesting to me that, that he, the son in the, in the text is so, dancing on the edge of this choice there's this distance there's this dense distancing effect that takes place whether for moral stigma by executing this plan or this idea um, or what have you down to the title read the title is the woman in the room it is the most clinical descriptor Mm, mm. of a of a body you can find like yeah right and and to me Again, like I said, this isn't actually a criticism of the text. In fact, it's saying it calls to me, calls out to me as for someone who thinks, like myself, for someone who thinks like we must dignify the person 
even unto their passing, mm. the the bodily experience has to have some some holiness and some respect attached to it, and yeah. thus it can't be clinically the woman in the room, the man in the room, right, the dog in right, the room. It is right, right. It is this person. It is it's who was, you know. Anyway, I don't. Yeah, it's making some sense, but it just yeah, really, it really kind of called out to me just the the title and the distancing even him as a character is doing while wrestling through this choice. Yeah, no, I I, I totally agree. And um, so we, we we've talked at length about this uh, story, and we have you know we have a, a broader conversation to get to. But uh, uh, unless you had something else more uh, burning to say about it, I would wholeheartedly recommend. The Woman in the Room, uh, again, from the collection Night Shift. We've already talked a little bit about, you know, uh, Stephen King's short output, as it were. So, um, by all means, yeah, um, seek out that story. Um, it is heavy, um, but is uh, is also uh, profoundly moving in many, many ways. So, yeah. Uh, did you have anything more to say about that? I don't. I all feel right. like, like TV Gapos, we need some sort of... Uncle Stevie Short's intro and outro, but I don't know what that would be. <laughs> no, I don't either. I don't either. <laughs> oh, Uncle Stevie Shorts, though, I like. Uh, I like that. We that 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 should become like a regular thing. That maybe just every once in a while, yeah. Uh, instead of a TV guidepost, we just insert another random Uncle Stevie Shorts in in there. I I, I like that. Um. So, but speaking of his shorter material, it's it's funny that we're mentioning he's got these collections of short works, and then you also mentioned Full Dark No Stars, which is a collection of four or in the paperback five uh, longer uh, short works or novellas as we've talked about which is where the um, hashtag different seasons comes from as well because different seasons is a collection of four shorter novels or novellas Um, so we're talking today about hearts in atlantis which originally is a book from 1999 uh, that stephen king had written and was translated uh, into a film in 2001 now, what's interesting about the book is the book is actually a collection of two novellas and three short stories that are loosely connected to one another. Have you ever read Hearts in Atlantis as a whole piece? I have, actually. Oh, awesome, awesome. So, um, yeah, and, and what's interesting about it that is not present in the other short story collections that we referenced is these stories while complete unto themselves, are loosely connected to one another. Most of the time, like in Full Dark No Stars, the stories don't have anything to do with each other directly. Like you finish the piece, and then the next piece is is a completely different story with completely different characters. Whereas Hearts in Atlantis was unique in the fact that the stories did build upon one another while still being complete unto themselves. Uh, now, did you did, did you like the book? Did you like Hearts in Atlantis? Uh, to my recollection, yeah. Um, so I was trying to recount for myself the nature of the shorts in Hearts in Atlantis. Um, oh, yes, yes. Low Men in Yellow Coats, which is this film. Right, right. I, it is funny in a little bit of reading I did, little trivial bit reading I did on the film, I it didn't click with me, because it's been that long since I've read it, that the present day action with the actor David Morse is another short in the book? Like yes, it's yes, it's the final short. Smashing them too, smashing them together. Yes, yeah. So the adapt the adapter of this, William Goldman, uh, who, if memory serves, though I haven't looked it up, I believe William Goldman had also adapted the screenplay for Misery, um, and th- he was tasked with 
adapting Hearts in Atlantis and basically chose to use the final story, which is in the book called Heavenly Shades of Night Are Falling, and uh, use that as a framing device for the longer adaptation of Low Men in Yellow Coats, uh, which is the first story in Hearts in Atlantis. And then they just they just called the whole film Hearts in Atlantis. But what's interesting about that is, like Hearts to me, Hearts in Atlantis is a story in that book, and because they did not adapt that story, the title means something totally different <laughs> in sure. the film yeah, yeah, than yeah. it means in King's book uh, because they just they didn't have. Uh, well, it is funny because the way he wove the film's title into the film, I was like. But I know this is not that. So <laughs> right. I, I, I yes, don't even exactly. remember what the actual application of the title is. It's much more uh, literal. Like they just they play uh, the card game Hearts, um, and mm. uh, yeah, so it's it, so it's a lot more literal in the book than um, the more metaphorical sort of lost childhood essence that the film tries to evoke. But in the prose, the present day story of the film is its own narrative. Yes. Bobby Garfield, uh, which is the main character in our, in our film. Um, and in the first story in the book, the final, so the book low men in yellow coats is the first novella in hearts in Atlantis. And what you see in the film covers the major narrative beats of low men in yellow coats. And then in hearts in Atlantis, the book, it then follows three stories of people who are connected to that first story, but Bobby Garfield is not in them. Sure. And then the final story, Heavenly Shades of Night Are Falling, Bobby, it returns to Bobby Garfield as an adult in very much the similar beats to what you see in the film, with the major exception that in the film, the character of Carol is dead, but in the novel, she is not. She has been uh, heavily, like, scarred i think she she had uh, like a burn accident um and she's changed her name but he but bobby and carol actually meet up again in the in the story in the novel well and it is worth mentioning here not that this isn't already windy enough but in the stephen king of it all the title low men in yellow coats which is of course not addressed at all in the film right the low men of the story are are emissaries of a sort from Midworld, yep. which is the Dark Tower kind of parallel universe that yep. that operates throughout the spine of much of King's work. And, yeah, you know, so it's just kind of interesting that they they, they go that route. Now, um, did you did you remember the character of Ted from the Dark Tower saga? Do you remember him? Um, it's okay if you don't like, because like, because I don't even remember all about it. I just I just remember some distant. As, uh, in, factoids as in he shows up in the Dark Tower series? Is that what Yes, yes. Uh, maybe if you place him, it, it may ring a bell. But, so uh, I can't remember. I'll be very brief about this because I cannot remember too many of the specifics. It's been a long time since I've read the final book. He's only in the final book, but he is... Uh, this is going to make no sense to people who haven't read the Dark Tower, but he is key to the Crimson King's plan to break the, the bins. Uh, no, he's not the artist. No. Right. Um, no, but he is key. He's a breaker. Yeah. Yes, he's a breaker, and that's why the Crimson King has sent the low men to collect him because he's key mm, to right, right. He's key to breaking the beams, and he does meet our 
uh, quartet, but I forget exactly in what context they encounter him. But I do remember that, like, the only thing I remember about it in this moment, because I didn't look this up beforehand and I didn't reread The Dark Tower to to recuperate my memory, um, the only thing I remember about it is that his psychic ability that the film, you know, displays and that the book more explicitly displays um, is, like, I, I remember the full force of what he can do is more explicitly stated in his presence in the dark tower novel, like, like his ability to sort of like sure. transport people and know all things and all these, like he's a very powerful and individual to your recollection in the book. Is it Anthony Hopkins? It was, it, it is. <laughs> we have lost so many people in the last five minutes. No, it's true. It's true. So this is just, it's pretty much only King fans that are, that are sticking around for this point or lovers of the show who are just like, they'll get back around eventually. Yeah, so, yeah. um, so yeah, so 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 bringing it back around uh, to the film, I mean, I don't I don't have a ton of trivial bits. I have a few things here. I do want to mention one more thing about the book that um, in the in the novel Hearts in Atlantis, different in contrast to the film. In the film, Bobby and Ted part ways because Ted is captured by the low men. Um, in the film, they he never hears from him again, and he specifically states, "I never heard from Ted again." In the book, he does, and I don't know if you recall this from your reading of the book, but I think it's pretty awesome. In the book, Bobby eventually does receive an envelope from Ted with no return address, but it's filled with red rose petals. Which, for the oh, fans wow. of the dark, yeah. yeah, for fans of the Dark Tower, know that the, there's a lot of significance behind roses, and it is heavily implied uh, to Bobby that Ted is finally and ultimately free of the Low Men, that he is that he has reached sort of home, if you will. So uh, the, I do want to mention a couple of things about the book Hearts in Atlantis um, that in many ways it's grimmer than the film is. The film, uh, while poignant and certainly uh, heavy in a couple of places, has a lighter tone and lighter intention than the book does. The book was kind of written as, if I can say it this way, uh, an indictment of like the baby boomer generation. Um, that basically King was calling to task that generation for not, as I've read uh, in places, though, forgive me, cannot remember where, uh, that he's calling to task that they did not live up to the promise of that generation. And You're saying the, the book does that? The book does that. that the part well, yeah, because one of the... Is, I'm sorry to cut you off there. No, is, you're fine. You're isn't fine. one of the the super shorts, like not one of the framing ones, uh, a Vietnam... Why we were in Vietnam? Tale? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the character from from the story Why We're in Vietnam is in the film, but he's the Sully character, the friend of theirs oh, that that okay. Bobby returns to. You know, uh, that's why he goes back home is to attend Sully's funeral. Well, that that story Why We're in Vietnam d- directly focuses on Sully, um, yeah. and uh, and yeah, it's it's a very grim and and very uh, heavy piece. One more comment that I wanted to make about the book is that ironic. Well, I don't know that this is ironic, but Hearts in Atlantis is one of King's most critically acclaimed books because King has had a long standing like battle with critics because a lot of sort of the literary world, like the, 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 uh, forgive me for sounding insulting on this, but the kind of the, the elite hoity toity, if you will, that is definitely insulting, but, uh, wow, <laughs> literary critic circles, uh, they normally deride or dismiss King's work. Like they don't really give it the respect that it deserves because it's horror and it's popular and all this stuff. Well, hearts in Atlantis 
is one of the books that even among that circle, they were like, no, this is different and this is strong and this is, you know, uh, digging into some different territory. And so it remains, even though it's not as heralded at, by his horror fans as like iconic King, it's, it's one of his most critically acclaimed books, which I found interesting. Um, that is, that, that is that's interesting. So <laughs> I don't have anything more <laughs> about uh, trivial bits. So let's let's get into your uh, your notes or not of uh, of the likes dislikes in in the film. All right. So read. Stop yeah, me if you Nathan. stop me if, stop me if you've heard this one. Okay. So I'm oh boy, pitch you here on oh boy. story idea. So like an adult writer learns of the passing of his childhood friend, and then. <laughs> We flash back <laughs> to kind of the origin of that sort of hmm. thing. Yeah, what do you think? Hmm. What do you What do you think? I, I think it's fresh. It's a it you is. know. Um, I know, I know. You know, there's that Rob Reiner movie, but in this one, as in a this kid, one. yes, in, yes. In, the, in this one, as a kid, the kid in the question, there's this weird insinuation about you know inappropriate relationship with an old man. Yeah, 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 think, yeah, which I makes think, it weird. I think yeah. that'll sell. I think it will. I think it will. And, and you know more than that, okay, if that if you don't think that's going to sell, maybe the old man is a telekinetic. Or a and you know what? You know? you know what? I've got a great, this... I've got a great, great title for it. Okay. Because, because honestly, like... Farts and in maybe... Atlantis. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Man busted out farts in Atlantis. <laughs> Won't even let me finish a joke, but just like bust I'm out. Sorry, I'm sorry, like, I'm sorry. No, 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 no. It's the Nathan show. You have, you have fun. Like you just go, you just go for it. Oh my gosh. No. So what I was gonna say was, okay. I was gonna say like you know, Please. like in the tradition of the Rob Reiner film, maybe we could create a popular song and maybe it could be called "Heaven Is a Place on Earth." You know, like maybe that is that is an appropriate title, and uh, we can we can associate it as such. And uh, but you know, think, farts in Atlantis think, is better. I, <laughs> That's, that's you winning, knew where that was gonna go. That's the winning are, title. That yes, is, like Ben Johnson. We are giving the flashlights here. And <laughs> some farts in Atlantis. <laughs> How long you been sitting on that one? No, that dude. I know you think this. This nothing is little to nothing is pre-planned in my life. You know, um, that was not planned. It happened like that. That's so great. That's the beauty of comedy, farts friend. In um, farts, farts in Atlantis with an Oh that man, is, that is um, gold. Oh boy. <laughs> um. So, so yeah. Uh, had you had you? I mean, did you see this in the theater? No, no. This is one that I didn't see until it was uh, a home video release. Uh, it just in general, uh, just happened to be one that I hadn't caught. Um. Now, what's funny is I, I still don't think. Let me. I'm gonna tip my hand a little bit to when we get to the fog meter and tip recommendation it. second. And but like, I, I don't love this movie. But I will say that this second viewing, I was more favorable towards it than my memory of it. Uh, my mm-hmm. my memory of watching it, I was very much like, eh, this is this is a thing. This is a movie. I didn't I didn't hate it. There's some good stuff in it, but it's not something that I would like highly recommend. And I should notate, I, maybe listeners care about this, maybe they don't, but I'm just going to spill this out here right now. In terms of, because next week we're going to Shawshank Redemption. That's the big like non horror work. If you're going to talk about non horror Stephen King. Shawshank Redemption is the is the most uh, culturally significant of those works, um, but we made we had a discussion you and I about whether or not to cover the Green Mile, 
And The Green Mile is also, uh, you know, by Frank Darabont. It's a great work. Um, and part of what we sort of struggled with a little bit is that some of the themes and some of the narrative itself, it's like it's just very on the nose. That's just, you know, a brief sort of take with that. And the reason we're covering Hearts in Atlantis is not because necessarily that that is a, uh, you know, a better film than something like A Green Mile, but because there's some different things to go to and there's a couple of different avenues to approach it. Maybe we'll get there when we get the theme. Um, but, uh, I, d I was not like terribly taken with this film. This viewing of it heightened my affection somewhat. It still didn't land into the, oh my gosh, everybody needs to see Hearts in Atlantis. Uh, but I was more fond of it this time around than the first time seeing it. This was your very first time seeing it, right? You know, I, it was funny going into it. I couldn't remember had I seen this or not because oh, I knew, okay. I, I knew I had read the book. Right. Um, yeah. But, which, I don't know if you know this, but critics actually really lauded the book. I had not heard that. Had often sort of overlooked King, un unrightly so. That's not say. true. Um, that's that, the, yeah, he's always what, been, he's always been very popular. That's what they say. Um, <laughs> Farts um, in Atlantis. Oh my god, he just did that. You just did that. Like, man, we are, about. you and I are we're clicking. We're this, clicking. This, this is a good one. This is it. Uh, this movie sucks. <laughs> <laughs> you said that about. So, the King material you don't care for. I have at least two on the shelf. When I've got Heart, Hearts in Atlantis and 1408. Like, you, like you do oh. not like 1408 at all. Um, no. But, uh, but yeah, you, you, well, so you think Hearts in Atlantis sucks. Well, I was being a little funny there, but no, I, I don't. I don't think it's very good. Uh, in fact, when um, so so yes, you asked had I seen it. I had not. The further it got into it, I was like, I don't think I've seen this, but it is very lukewarm and milk toast. So maybe I yeah. have, and it's just that forgettable vanilla, <laughs> right, right? Right. That that I am. Um, I mean, I think fourteen oh eight and this are dramatically different, but you know. They're, they're bad for different reasons um, sure sure uh yeah i think it is very flat like mm, mm. i don't i i i don't think this movie does much at all to to tell me or show me rather why i am meant to kind of care about whatever is going on okay, um sure yeah you know like like it signifies it gives you the signifiers. Cute kid. And Anton Yelchin's great. Like, I, I didn't He's, know yeah. going into it that he was going to be in it. And I was like, well, dang. Yeah, yeah, there's a reason people really loved Anton Yelchin. I think it's um, his feature film debut. I could be wrong about that. But I think I think this is his first major film. You know, this guy, Anthony Hopkins, you know, he's, I think he's got a career ahead of him. <laughs> um, possibly maybe someday be yeah. recognized by maybe. by the major awards we'll we'll see yeah, I, don't, yeah. I don't know it's a major award um <laughs> fragile <laughs> <laughs> goodness gracious uh we're at the end of the year here and we are just spun yeah up yeah y'all um <laughs> but uh <laughs> my man said yeah y'all um that was like the most terrible thing you've said in a while Whoa. Um, so so anyway yachton is great um, yes, he is. The general, the general production value is strong. I mean, there's not a lot you can criticize. Per I, as a brief little note, uh, note here, the Alan Tudyk yeah. cameo show up. That's a great scene. It's that's a really that's 
Yeah. I w- might say that's the only good scene in the movie. The only, like, <laughs> well, really I, good scene. Yes. I feel like of the two or three scenes that I, that I really strongly responded to, that is probably the strongest. Like, that, that is... It's a very brief exchange at a at a fair at a, like a carnival. Um, he is a card shuffler where where he does the whole like, "Hey, can you keep your eye on the Queen of Hearts while I shuffle these cards around?" And um, there's an element is to the Queen of Hearts or the Queen of Hearts. It's it's the Queen of Hearts. You know. You know. <laughs> oh my God! I can't believe he's doing that. So. So, <laughs> we just turned into a whole different show. It is. It you is. Are, this is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is yeah. It. This is, it. There's a listener out there going like, "When are they going to get to the faith stuff?" I don't know. <laughs> it's like it's like so so faith and for. <laughs> I have never in our 20 years of friendship heard you go so hard on fart jokes as you are right now. Well, you the usually... movie told me farts are funny, so <laughs> so. So basically, um, God. everybody's like, wow, the pendulum swings. We're talking this heartfelt conversation about euthanizing. And, oh, my God. Now, and now, now we're like, they are literally farting into the microphone. I don't understand. No, no, no. no, no, no. You are. You are. <laughs> Let's be clear. Let's be clear about this. Between the two, 50% Distance. of us are. Okay, so... <laughs> So, Alan Tudyk is in this movie. Alan Tudyk is great and it's in this. It's the only reason to watch it. That's Skip a great ahead. scene. So so there is an element to Anthony Hopkins' character that he has a psychic ability. And when he is utilizing his psychic ability, there's a it's, it's a bit nebulous in the film, but when he's utilizing his psychic ability, if he were to touch someone at that same time, some of that ability would transfer to them. That has happened to Bobby. <laughs> Like a psychic fart. <laughs> a psychic fart. <laughs> my mama called it shining. So <laughs> talk about steam. So... <laughs> oh my god! You have just rewritten Stephen King's entire cast. No wonder critics didn't take him seriously. <laughs> Vincent, no wonder critics didn't take him seriously. <laughs> What is all this? What is all this farting around? I don't. Understand. We have lost so many listeners in the last this thirty one, minutes. This one's just for us. This oh one. Gosh. This was just for us. That's, um, that's what they were saying making this movie. They're like this one's just for us. Nobody just, else. Just, is just for us. Like oh man! So getting back to that Alan Tudyk scene is uh, like. Uh, oh my god. Anthony Hopkins' character has transferred like some of this psychic ability to the young character of Bobby and Bobby is able to, you know, see right through because of this ability that he now has. He's able to accurately guess where the missing card is um to Alan Tudyk multiple times. Oh yeah, yeah, to his increased frustration, but it's a it's a pretty galvanizing little scene. A lot of it is just Tudyk's presence in the in well, the film, but because yeah. I mean, my goodness, I had just watched Wreck-It Ralph 2 earlier in the day with Nosemore, and I'm like, I am not used to seeing Alan Tudyk pissed off, and it is not a pleasant experience. (laughs) (laughs) He is not happy in that scene, which is interesting because that was, I, I don't, I didn't look far enough back in his catalog here, but that's, this came out in 01, and Firefly, at least to my knowledge, is when 
he first kind of really made some sort of splash pop culturally ah, okay. uh, was, was the next year. So like his persona that has been finely tuned over the last 15 years and, and there was, was a, was not in place. Sure. And there was, <clears throat> there was a deleted scene uh, for that scene where like he goes back and he's talking to his friend. There's like, more hearts in Atlanta. <laughs> there's more hearts in Atlanta. So he goes back home to his friend. And as soon as he walks in, he says, I have had a doozy of a day. Oh, and, no, <laughs> no, no, no. I, th- I thought I, th- I thought you were being for real. I was like, I don't know that this is real. Oh, like, what okay, is it? No, oh, it's not. No, it's not no, real. This is it's not a not thing. Real. This is not a thing. It's just read. Okay, so I have. Wow, Reed's gonna read. <laughs> read gonna read. Um, so there, I, I did write this note down. Uh, this is from the, near the beginning of the film. Man, I love me a library card, but don't ever just get me a library card for my birthday. Like, don't do that. Like. Just note to self, take Reed's <laughs> Christmas gift. Exactly, back. exactly. I'm informing you now because I know this will be a conversation. So do not, do not do that. Right. Um. So, but I. So to to a general comment, it's that, like that time you tried to get me a Bob Dylan CD for Christmas. That was great. Was that great. was great. I was. I, so, mean, I was so proud of like, myself. It wasn't a great gift. It was a great gag. It was a great. It was you a did, great. You gag. did good. You did good. You've come a long way. No. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot believe you keep going back to that I cannot believe it. I am in disbelief. We have got to wrap I this up. I am in awe. Okay, so uh, so a couple of things. All right, so first of all, uh, I I do feel like this film, so the general premise of the film, for those who do not care to watch it after we're talking about it here, um, the general premise of the film is Anthony Hopkins' character, Ted Brodigan, Comes into town. Bobby is like it's it's very much like this young sort of uh, idyllic '60s childhood kind of thing. Uh, but his dad uh, has passed away, and he's living with his mom, who pays zero attention to him. She's very uh, neglectful of him, and in ways that are not like she's not one of those moms that you look at and you're like, well, but she's trying really hard. Like, no, she's making some really poor choices. There are lots of really poor choices uh, that that are causing some distance and Ted Brodigan comes into their world and through the course of their relationship, like just their friendship, um, you know, has this profound effect on Bobby. It, it pivots towards the end to like Ted Brodigan's on the run from these mysterious sort of low men characters that we keep referencing, which does play into the latter part of the film. But, uh, but I mean, honestly, that's, that's the summation of the film. It's 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 a mood piece. It's it's a it's something that's trying to evoke. As in, I'll put you in a bad mood. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, it's it's something that is like you use the word milk toast. Like it is so like sugary <laughs> sweet kind of like it's it's just very saccharine. And I thought milk toast is more like bland. So well, you know what? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, whatever, well, whatever it was. I'm, pretty positive so you may not know but i'm saying i think i know it's like reed you don't know so i'm right. here to tell you i'm saying um, it's not sugary it is it's bland. not no uh, so, so words it's can, like yeah. it's less like sugar and more like gruel wow i would not call this film grueling i mean it's like well like, no i didn't say grueling i'd like gruel like a like the like the soup this is Gruel. 
this is this is productive conversation. So, um, I mean, I don't, I can't believe you're still trying to summarize it. It doesn't matter. It's not a good movie. <laughs> <laughs> so, but you know, like, man, they're probably fans of this of this film who have who have checked out. Like, raise your hand, these everyone guys. in the room. Wow, if you are a fan <laughs> oh, of this movie. Wow. Um, well, Ro- Roger Ebert was a huge fan of this. Like, like really? he he and he and uh, I believe. Richard Roper was his co-host at the time, but yeah, like Ebert and Roper like gave it like big thumbs up, like they loved it, like they really thought well, this film was great. I mean, you know, I mean, to each their own. Everybody gets it wrong sometimes. <laughs> wow. Um. So, so I want to I want to pivot to something to you know with an eye towards kind of winding it down. I want to summarize the that basically the last like twenty minutes of the film. Uh, Anthony Hopkins character comes in with some suspicion as it is and one of the things that the mom that Bobby Garfield's mom is just painfully naive about is she is clearly being wooed and pursued by her employer and at first I don't know if you gave this any thought but at first I thought she was willingly complicit in so much of that I agree And, and then when Later in the film, when he directly assaults her in a very uh, upsetting scene, um, it is like I, I was surprised that she was surprised by that because I thought this is kind of what you're playing into all of this time, and and so that uh, I struggled with that quite a bit. Um, but then she comes home, and as by pure unfortunate coincidence, uh, Bobby's uh, sort of young. Uh, that uh, like uh, not girlfriend, but like he's he's sweet on her, and they're they're kind of developing a thing. Um, she has been attacked, brutally attacked by a nasty bully, and uh, so she's been attacked. Bobby brings her home. Ted helps her. Her shoulder has been dislocated, and Ted fixes her shoulder. But unfortunately, the mom who has just come back from having been outright assaulted walks in on him uh you know like the girl is on the bed his hand is on her shoulder so naturally her mind goes to all of these awful places because of what she's just gone through and uh she just takes out the full fury of her frustration um out on Ted wh- and then ultimately betrays him and like calls the low men that are looking for him and turns him in and that's that that's what sort of ends the the Ted Brodigan story but there is something that I there was something that I found a, a, a line. There are two lines that I found that I did like quite a bit, um, and I thought they were worth. I'll I'll frame this in a second. The lines that I'm referring to are there's one point at which Broadigan says we're all just passing through, kiddo, and then um, later Bobby, in reflecting on his time with Ted, says something that I did like a lot. Says what Ted did was open my eyes and let the future in. And the film is trying very hard to sort of be about this exploration of a loss of innocence. And it's uh, it's trying to sort of capture that moment as they try to contextualize it in the film where, like, as if you're living in Atlantis, this idyllic, you know, sort right. of setting, and then your heart is shattered by the realities that find their way and, and break in um, in the hard places and um and so i found it the this idea of passing through 
there are a couple of lines and a couple of times through the film where it is called out so on the nose, but where they talk about like this moment will never come again. Like this, this, your perspective of this, the way you view it, the way you navigate it. Um, you know, like he talks about his first kiss with Carol is going to be the one by which all others are judged and found deficient, found wanting. Um, and so I did, again, I mentioned that I didn't really care for it my first viewing. I don't foresee you ever watching this film again, and I don't blame you. My second viewing through of it, um, I was more uh, forgiving of it and and a little bit more, uh, affection's the wrong word, but a little bit more taken with it because of some of these ideas, ham-fisted as they may be, of this sort of notion of the the fragility of the time in which you're in. Like, recognizing, like, this time right now is not going to last forever, and it's going to, like, you are a traveler through time, and your journey through childhood and into adulthood, uh, I grasped onto the language and the concept of opening your eyes and letting the future in, being willing to migrate the journey into in to maturity and into we've talked in many ways about stronger material um, about like just the the necessity of putting childish things behind you and moving into maturity and moving on and I do feel like insufficient as the end result might be that the film is trying very hard to grasp at that straw in a way that I think not only isn't quite representative of the of the King source material, but also doesn't uh, really stick the landing in a way that I think it it probably could have otherwise. Um, yeah, and I and you know I am leaning into being silly about how vanilla I think the film is, but sure, sure. I'm also just you know that's a bit persona, but I think what's unfortunate because. I, I wrote this down. I said, on paper, this film seems like a decent idea, but it falls flat. The production is good. The acting is good. The script isn't bad. It just... Right, right. They tried to do all of... They tried to do everything. And, yeah, yeah. And then got confused about what mattered. And it's like, mm. they're trying to position the relationship between Bobby and Ted as central, but the stakes around Ted's presence are so unclear, so mm, unclear. Right. Right. And, right. and I think that's a big deal. Like I, I need to kind of understand. And so I think what King as a writer is good at, as we've often said, does not always translate. And I think right. that is the attempt to string this along an adult story as well. Didn't translate. Um, sure, I think, sure. I think, I think, yeah, it just did. It needed to zero in more. And mm. if this story had zero mystical element to it, and if this story had no framing device and were just a young boy in need of a father figure finds that in this older quirky, peculiar gentleman at the same time, his mother is under predation by this employer and the conflict that ensues from it, that's a much more interesting story. Like sure. That. Yeah. And maybe, right, right. It, maybe it flirts with some King mysticism, but looking at the prose, it feels clear that King was doing an exercise in exploring his created universe 
i.e., what ha- what if uh, there's a person in the real world who has some sort of weird shine and or connection to the Dark Tower world, but I'm only going to flirt with that on the fringes, which is all right, fine right. if you're reading it in a Stephen King book. But when you're trying to translate that, I don't know you're not arguing against this. I'm just sort of sure, sourcing sure. This, you know, kind of feeling this out in my own head. But when you translate that over, it doesn't work. Like right, the low right. men in yellow coats are little impish, weird things right, that right. aren't human. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. when you want to use that language still in the film, and instead they're just these like Goombas walking out of the Irishman, I'm like, <laughs> I don't, I just don't get it. Yeah. And that's why the strength of the Alan Tudyk scene is so potent is because everything else doesn't matter. This is just two characters having the, the stakes are clear. <laughs> yeah. Right. That's he doesn't point. want, yeah. he, he doesn't want the little boy to win. The little boy can win. And so there's your conflict. Yeah. And, and it's the only, t- I apologize for cutting you off. No, but you're fine. It's the only time in the film. Now I, w- I will say this as <clears throat> I'm not going to strongly defend the film about anything. I don't even yeah, know if I'm going to defend it at all, I'm, but partly I'm just sort of articulating Right, in, a new, right. in a way that I haven't yet, kind of what I mean. But what I will say about it is that Alan Tudyk scene may be the only scene in the film where the film stops telling us and starts showing us. Yes, yes. Because absolutely. the film tells everything us everything else is signifier. Yeah, yes. it it tells us everything, every single speech from anybody, including Ted Brodigan, who I feel like, I mean I feel like Anthony Hopkins is fine in this. Like, like you, you said it really well earlier. Like everything about the film is perfectly fine, but it is, it's telling us everything. And that Alan Tudyk scene, you see it on his face and it's, and you see it on Bobby's face. And there's so much in that one individual scene that's not quite explicitly spelled out for you. And that's what makes that scene more interesting. And that's what makes it hit harder. And to the point of just odd choices and signifiers, I didn't remember enough. I remembered the relationship of Brodigan and Bobby as the child. I didn't remember really the adult story with David Morse that they use here. Gotcha. And in those first five minutes or so, when he goes to the funeral of Sully and then asks uh, about Carol. Carol. Okay. Yeah, Carol. Carol. Mm-hmm. Carol. And the guy's like, oh, by the way, you don't know she's dead, too. I was like, what? That's stupid. That's yeah, what well, that that's pointless. It is literally pointless to this movie. Yeah, it doesn't yeah, matter. I agree. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would make the case the adult story with David Morse doesn't matter at all. Like zoom in more, but well, and then, okay, so then you get to again. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm cutting you off. No, but, you're fine. But then you get to forget. Like he sees the daughter walking by the house, right? Which is the same actor. Oh, y'all sa- are clever. Yes, and alone. Like, where's she going? What what is this? Where where's she on her way to? But she's walking by alone, and then he says this vaguest of all vague lines, and says, "We didn't keep in. T- I was hoping to see her. We didn't keep in touch like we said we would." Girl turns around and is like, "You're the boy from the Ferris wheel." Like, like what? Yeah. How did? What story? What teenager in their right mind? Like, no t- teenagers don't even listen to their parents. Like, why in the world this this one has honed in on this obscure story about her first kiss on a Ferris wheel and then knows it by simply the guy saying we didn't keep in touch? Like, yeah, there's a, again, this is I'm criticizing 
the lengths to which the film spells it out for you. It gives yeah, you it's just like, lazy. Yes. Yeah. Lazy is a good word. I feel like I feel like the film is earnest and I feel like it's sincere, but unfortunately, it takes the shortcut instead of making the more difficult choices to what it's after. And I pivoting back to the source material of the book, I feel like one of the reasons why and it's been a long time since I've read it, but I feel like one of the reasons why that book hits harder is because it's dealing with some things that it that it is willing to let be complicated and that it's willing to let be muddy and it doesn't quite spell out as directly what it is. Because, like, in the book, the character of Bobby, after what happens with Ted, he becomes, like, a juvenile delinquent. Like, he never he never reconciles with his mother. Like, that's that's an element of the story that, like, that when his mother turns Ted in, which she does in the, in the novel as well, when she turns Ted in, like, that ends their relationship period. They do, they do not reconcile. And so, you know, King, as we've, you know, indicated in the short, shorter works that we've talked about, like King is good, alarmingly good at being able to pack some really heavy punches on some of those character relationships, including their endings as well as their substance. Um, and so, so, so this is a, you know, to kind of sort of wrap a bow on this. I know we're talking about, we haven't delved as much into theme, but honestly, it's not there. <laughs> yeah, this is like the theme is spelled out for you about this loss of innocence and about that sort of thing. And as I as I had given it a bit of lip service earlier, I genuinely have some appreciation for what the film is trying to do. I don't have as much admiration for the way it goes about it or for how it ultimately lands there. Uh, but that having been said, I would highly recommend, since we've done an episode on it right now, I would highly recommend that listeners seek out the book. The book is good. The book is genuinely very sure. strong. Um, I think you will find the book rewarding. It is made up of five smaller pieces that loosely connect to one another. Um, and I genuinely, and if you're inclined not to read but to listen to audiobooks, uh, I think it's the only audiobook that he's narrated, but William Hurt uh, narrates oh. the audiobook of Hearts in Atlantis and does an amazing job. Um, so yeah, it's, it, it is a I book that you can get over farts in Atlanta. So <laughs> that is, that is, that's going to be the takeaway. Of, Fear of God Hall of Fame. This is going to be ranking right up there with all of our best bits of that, the slurp yeah, from Chex's your, Chainsaw your, Massacre. Your farts in Atlantis recurring fart noise is, a slurp, is my slurp from TCM. Well, oh I think, gosh. I think what it, it is interesting every now and then. I'm like, maybe I'm not Lenny after all. But, <laughs> uh, you know, you watch a movie like this, which maybe this is just low-hanging fruit and I am still Lenny, but you're like, <laughs> okay, some. why did no one just stop and be like, y'all, what are we doing? What? <laughs> what is the story here? Because that's what gets lost. There's no... Yeah, yeah. You know, it feels like they decided on a theme and then wanted to sort of manufacture scenes around it and, and yeah, yeah. sacrificed all of it in the yeah. process. No, I get it. Um, I get it. Yeah. Anyway, I, you know, I'm not trying to defend it to you or, or anything. I'm just thinking out sure. loud of like identifying, you know, what makes something good. It's, it's characters with clearly defined motivations and conflict. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. So um, this is uncommon a bit for us. Uh, we're we're going to pivot now into the fog meter as longtime listeners of the show. And, and if you're here with us for the first time, normally 
we will have you know pivoted into something where we sort of explore the deeper richer themes that a piece of material might be after um but this film really doesn't have any interest in taking things below the two feet mark you know so uh so we're gonna uh, gonna pivot over into the fog meter our very specific metric the the, oh no 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 i know where you were going i know where you were about to say i just can't get over it you know like my but my my coworker. Erroneous, erroneously will you sometimes read this is this is classic <laughs> it's, it's a classic. classic it's a classic uh, so so why don't yeah why don't you lead the charge in the in the fog meter Go no ahead. i want you to do it you're already oh. setting up i okay, wasn't interrupting so. you so i could do it oh i, was I got just, you i got you yeah. no 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 i was just thinking about farts in atlantis and just could not contain myself I'm the queen of farts it's great yeah so basically <laughs> um we judge these films by their fear measurement and their God measurement, their scares and their substance. Um, I mean, the fear measurement on this, dude, with the exception of that, I mean, literally, the simultaneous scene where mom is being assaulted at the conference, juxtaposed with that same moment, young Carol is being accosted by the bully. Um, that scene alone earns this a one on the fear meter. Like otherwise it would be zero. Like otherwise it would be zero. But uh that'll earn it a one from me. Well what's funny about you saying that is like I was so like you said as a viewer when mom gets accosted, I was like, oh well now I'm just confused because I thought I thought that's what she was down for. Right. Yeah. And then when Carol gets beat up, I was like, why is this even happening? It doesn't even matter. There's there's no clearly defined anything going on right. here except hey, I wanna, child getting beaten. Yeah, what? No, zero. I, no, I want to mm-hmm. pause. I want to pause for a second. Yeah, you're at a zero. That's good. I want to pause for a second. I don't want to mean to take us back in, but uh, a listener yeah. who has not seen the film, I just I, I, I don't want to be hypersensitive, but I do want to be acknowledging a listener who may like we've mentioned a couple of times that the mom character seems like she's kind of in for it, and I don't want that to be misconstrued. By people who may, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. that like we're not implying that like, oh, well, she's just asking for it. That's ridiculous no. and stupid. God, no. no, no, it is very. But there's earlier scenes. I'm yes, sorry. no, no, no. That's no. You're you're at it. There there are earlier scenes in the film where, intentionally or otherwise, the film leads us to believe that she is actively engaging in an affair with this person. Not, Absolutely. Not that you know. So so the reason that it is surprising her reaction when she is assaulted is because the film again, intentional or otherwise, leads you to believe she is actively engaging in a relationship with this person. And when she is assaulted, which is heinous and upsetting, she seems genuinely shocked that he is even interested in that. Like, like she's right. she seems surprised that this is why he's really here, which is why it feels like a pivot. I was just kind of starting to get hyper or maybe self-conscious about, like, I didn't want that impression to go through. No, I think like, that's... Yeah. I think that's valuable, and if anything, what we aren't saying is what a dumb character. What we're saying is this is a failure of the movie. Yes, no, I agree. It I agree. kind of lies to you. Yes, and yeah. not in the fair storytelling, storyteller, consumer kind of way. In a like, well, now I just don't even know what on earth I'm. Yeah, yeah, yeah so, no, exactly. I, I, no, exactly. I appreciate that interlude or that interjection, and and think that's appropriate to be sensitive to because we wouldn't do that and right no absolutely just the, the movie rings false yeah no it. i agree i agree anyway so yeah zero on scares um, get it. Uh, as far as sub- substance i'm gonna i'm gonna at least acknowledge that maybe they're trying to do something and go for a one but no i don't, mm. I don't 
there's you just said basically typically we talk about themes here but there really isn't any you know and so we're just going to go to the fog meter yeah and and i will say so like i'm gonna i'm gonna give it a two and the so the thing for me is that the issue here is that is not for me that there aren't themes it's that I have nothing interesting to walk away with because you've told me how I'm supposed to feel. And because you've you've just spelled out in blatant paint-by-numbers ways how I'm supposed to feel about it, I am left with nothing else to linger on once I walk away from it. So that's why it's and so more than And more than that, like, unfair or not to, to farts in Atlantis <laughs> is... We just watched Stand By Me, and whatever Hearts in Atlantis is after yes, is infinitely yes. more accomplished yeah. than Stand By Me. And you know right. what? And, and yes, so that's great. Like, if you want to know why we are so frustrated and critical of this film, and admittedly, like, like, they're two films made in two different ways, two different stories, we get it. But the reason we're so critical of a film like this is because we see how it can be done so effectively in something like Stand By Me. And that, you know, again, it just, it, it rings hollow and feels overproduced and feels forced, whereas Stand By Me felt so much more organic. Um, so, so yeah. So that means that we give this, <laughs> we give this film on the fog meter a... God, that is a new low for the fog. Didn't know I could love you more (laughs) than I do after the last hour and thirty minutes. I can't. I am stunned (laughs) at your willingness. Because what listeners don't know is, (laughs) in the first six months to a year of our show, you and I would have to debrief occasionally because you you would be like nathan you are too raucous like I- i'm i would never say memory. that sure well, yeah yeah, no, yeah, I, yeah i know but like i can have this propensity to just keep on and mm-hmm, even mm, moments mm, when reed's trying mm. to go serious so <laughs> it feels <laughs> like, like a, i feel like wow we just entered a new era it's like so, the end <laughs> of a decade the end of a decade you know the beginning of the new yeah, no. you will. Wow. You will always yeah. have something to thank Hearts in Atlanta's for. So yeah, so there I mean, you go. There this you go. movie is garbage, but this recording, this podcast <laughs> recording, is going to be gold. <laughs> like we went, we went deep and profound on a woman in the room, and we mm. went amazingly shallow. Like, <laughs> it is pretty shallow. Yes, like. So shallower than I thought possible. Yes. So, um, so obviously we, you know, we we we've given it, you know, fundamentally a one on the fog meter. But what a big old fart? I mean, do you, do you recommend it? <laughs> Has there ever been a more rhetorical question asked? Um, I would say if it's if it exists. As a scene, YouTube, the Alan Tudyk scene from Farts in Atlantis. Uh, otherwise, no, <laughs> sure. not at all. You can, you, um, and by the way, don't need a ton of context for that scene we're referring to. No. Like, yeah, that's actually a good call. Like, YouTube. I mean, the movie you wouldn't know, give it to you anyway. Yeah, you, YouTube, like, card shuffle scene from Hearts in Atlantis, and you, that, 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 that's it. That's, that, I don't there, know. There Try again. What are, what are other things that can... I'm just... 
<laughs> ribbon. I'm just I'm just farting with you, Reed. You, I just uh, love how you're like, hey, Google this, and you lamed like ten so, words. I'm like, that's a big Google search there. That's a lot. Like, yeah, man, that's just too many right. words. You know, like so. Uh, like so, even if you even if a person was like, man, I really want to watch that scene, but it's not on YouTube. Maybe I'll just rent it to watch that scene. Don't do that. It's not worth. No, it yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't do that. So, so what what we're basically saying is that. For Hearts in Atlantis, it's a hard pass. Yep. Yeah. I don't know that we've ever done that. Yeah, I don't know either. I don't, yeah, it's, uh, Final Destination came pretty close. No, we, we, we didn't care for Final, Final Destination. Final Destination deserves but... a hard pass. <laughs> I don't know that we were even, though, quite that hard on it. Um, <laughs> oh, it's true. So That's so, amazing. Anyway, yeah, so, so there's that. Next week, we are going to go in the literal opposite direction. Because next week... We are finally going to land at what I'm extremely excited to talk about in this non-horror Stephen King material. We are going to go to what is arguably the most famous and culturally significant of Stephen King's non-horror work, and that is Frank Darabont's adaptation of The Shawshank Redemption. So, uh, you've probably seen that film. <laughs> it's like me, most ev- no, no, everybody, like oh. listeners, you are have you being probably obtuse? no. Are you being? I'm obtuse? kidding. That's Reed. a I'm great reference. That's a, Thank that's you. A great reference. Yep. Thank yep. you, and you're welcome. Oh wow. Um, so yes, uh, listeners, you have probably seen this film. Watch it again if you so desire. Um, and but either way, come back for us next week. We're gonna have a full discussion on that. So tune in for that next week. Nathan, thanks Reed. for uh, sitting through this movie uh, <laughs> and uh, all sure. that uh, all that came with you know, that. It, so. I will say this: the watching of this movie was laborious and tedious and actively put me to sleep, but <laughs> it was worth it for the last hour and 40 minutes. I, I can say that like, oh, right. with utter sincerity. Uh, awesome. Is, awesome. Yeah. On that note, smell you later. <laughs> we'll see you next week, guys. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom but not the end of the conversation. And you can continue the conversation in a variety of ways. You can follow us on Twitter at The Fear of God. You can like and follow us on Facebook or join the Facebook Fear of God discussion group. You can follow us on Instagram at Fear of God Podcast. Go to morethanonelesson.com to leave a comment on this post or any of the other official episode posts. Email us at fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. Our theme music was composed by Lee Wright and Reed Lackey. Our podcast art was crafted by Jacob Hunt of jacobhuntcomics.com. Merchandise for the show can be found at tpublic.com. Just search The Fear of God Podcast, all one word. And last but not least, if you listen to us through iTunes, we would greatly appreciate a rating or a review. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Hi, everybody.